The False Claims Act continues to be a huge weapon for the government. Listen to these mid-year 2022 settlements and you can see why. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today's episode, I am going to discuss the mid-year 2022 False Claims Act settlements that have occurred. And just to give the listeners some idea of what the government is continuing to litigate, as well as the Quitam Bar is continuing to litigate under the False Claims Act. Now, if you're listening to this outside of the mid-year 2022, this episode is still relevant because it tells you some of the issues that other healthcare providers have stumbled into and either have been discovered by the government or have been pursued by Quitam relators under the False Claims Act. And I continue to emphasize the Quitam relators because under the False Claims Act, it gives the power for an individual to bring a case on behalf of the government under, under the False Claims Act if they believe that false claims have been submitted. And the Quitam relator can receive between 15 and 30% of what the government actually collects based upon the False Claims Act settlement or adjudication if this was the case. Now, just some of the basics under the False Claims Act, as we know, it takes knowledge, but knowledge isn't just actual knowledge. Under the False Claims Act, a provider commits a false claims if they know that the claim submitted is false, either with, number one, actual knowledge, number two, intentional indifference for the accuracy of the claim submitted, or number three, reckless disregard for the accuracy of the claim submitted. So you don't have to, at the point that you're pushing the magical Medicare button, to know and understand that what you're submitting is a false claim if you act with intentional indifference or reckless disregard for the accuracy. Uh, and sometimes you can get into a situation where you just don't audit claims or you don't have an effective compliance program. Uh, and that somebody could allege is that that's reckless disregard for submitting claims to the government under the False Claims Act. And the reason why the, the False Claims Act is a huge weapon for the government is because of the fines and penalties and damages that exist under the False Claims Act. Under the False Claims Act, it's trouble damages, so whatever you have submitted to the government times three, that those are the damages. 
Then penalties, it can be somewhere between, and this is a 2022 values, between $12,537 up to $25,076 per claim submitted. So before I get into the actual cases, uh, let me just roll out how this becomes a huge issue for healthcare providers. Let's assume you're a laboratory and you build a government for a $5 test, and it was alleged by a Quitam relator that that $5 test build was inaccurate. And you build 100,000 of these tests. So a single repayment to the government would be 500,000. 100,000 claims times $5 per claim is 500,000. Trouble damages, you would take that 500,000 multiplied by three, now you're at $1,500,000. Those are the damages. Now the penalties is if, if you're able to claim or the government is able to claim up to the $25,076 per claim, you'll take that 100,000 claims that were submitted times $25,076 per claim. That's $2,507,600,000. You add that with the damages of the 1.5 million, now you have for submitting 100,000 $5 claims in the aggregate, that's $500,000, you stand to potentially have to repay the government $2,509,100,000. Hence, it is a very huge weapon for the government. Periodically in Stark Integrity, the podcast, I pause and go through some of the settlements just by way of example of what is being litigated, what is being settled out there by healthcare providers. And I'm going to give you just the list of the issues uh, for the first part of 2022, but I do want to emphasize that more than $500 million has been collected by the United States government during the first half of 2022. That's $500 million, and 80% of what the government is collecting is coming from the healthcare sector. So that means the healthcare sector is the largest payer of penalties and damages to the United States government under the False Claims Act. So here's the list of the items that were settled upon for the first part of 2022. And some of these are old timers, and a couple of these are kind of a nuanced issue. So first off, ordering medically unnecessary tests and testing. Next one's billing for services or items not provided. Next is offering discounts as an inducement for purchasing of drugs. Next one is providing free services as a kickback to physician referral sources. Next one is underpayment of drug rebates. Uh, These are rebates to the Medicaid programs. Next one is anesthesia kickbacks to outpatient surgery centers, obviously benefiting the physician owners of those ambulatory surgery centers. Next one is false home health, homebound certification. Next is billing for tests covered by the 14-day inpatient rule, so billing for tests that should have otherwise been covered by the DRG. And lastly, using unlicensed and unsupervised staff in order to perform the services billed. So now I'm going to give you just a little bit of the facts of each of these cases. 
It's not intended to provide a complete detailed analysis of each case. So in some circumstances, I'll reference the entity. I'll definitely talk about the dollar amount that was paid by the entity to resolve and basically what the issue was. So if any listeners want to go granular on any of these settlements, you can look them up on the internet and find out some more specifics. And and typically when I'm, I'm doing this, I would actually go to the original complaint that was filed. And that kind of spells it out, at least from the Quitam Relator's perspective, what the facts in question are. So the first one, and I'm going to take these sort of in order of when the settlements occur during the first part of 2022, is the University of California San Diego Health. They agreed to pay $3 million uh, regarding submitting and referring unnecessary genetic testing. And so the the government com- believed that the test, this genetic testing that was being ordered uh, was not medically necessary uh, based upon the claims being submitted. And that was $3 million. Next is a diabetic shoe company paid back $5.5 million. And here, this is interesting because they were providing shoe inserts and they were billing as if those shoe inserts were customized, customized for each of the patients where the claim was submitted, but they actually came from a generic model. Uh, so in this case, you have to watch it, and this could have been a, a code issue that they selected the wrong code. They billed it as a customized uh, shoe insert versus a generic uh, shoe insert. The next one has to deal with drug rebates. So in this case, Cardinal Health agreed to pay $13 million to settle a False Claims Act case uh, where they were providing discounts related to the purchasing of drugs to physician practices. Now, discounts and also rebates are not per se illegal, but in this case, these were upfront discounts and they were not tied to any particular sale Uh, that was associated with kind of an earned rebate. Now, there's a discount safe harbor under the anti-kickback statute, and there you really have to tie the discounts or the rebates to the purchases. And here, it was not tied. So it really was kind of, I'm using air quotes now, upfront discount disguised as, and these are allegations, disguised as a kickback uh, for the further purchases of the drugs uh, from the paying company. The next one is is a little interesting. This is a Catholic medical center agreed to pay $3.8 million under the False Claims Act and the anti-kickback statute. And I do also believe the Stark Law was, was implicated here. And this hospital basically was was paying its own employed cardiologist. So the hospital had employed cardiologist and was providing the employed cardiologist services to an independent cardiologist. So so when the independent cardiologist was on vacation or gone from the practice, then the hospital's employed cardiologist was providing coverage. Now that 
is not per se illegal, except the independent cardiologist who technically was receiving those services was not paying for those services. So it was a free service of cardiologists employed by the hospital to the independent physician to provide coverage for that independent physician's practice. So that was a benefit. We go back to our definition of remuneration and compensation under the Stark Law. That was a benefit that was paid by the hospital to the independent cardiologist through the hospital's employed physicians, and the, the independent physicians was not paying for that benefit. Now, the next one, and I probably need to do an episode just on the facts of, of these this case. Uh, there were three Ohio-based providers that paid back $3 million to resolve allegations that they billed for surgeries that were performed by an orthopedic surgeon that the orthopedic surgeon did not perform. So they were billing for services not rendered, which obviously would be false, but uh, the billing entities, uh, so they were billing the technical component of the service, did not know, actually know at the time that they submitted the bill that the physician did not perform the service. But under the False Claims Act, because of broad definition of knowledge, the government indicated that they should have known that the claims were false. And the only way that you can know is to go back and do some type of auditing, have an effective compliance program in order to discover those issues. So that was a case uh, where they paid back $3 million to the government. So next I'm going to return to pharmaceutical rebates. Uh, this is a pharmaceutical company called Malincrocht. Uh, they agreed to pay back $260 million to resolve allegations under the anti-kickback statute and the False Claims Act by underpaying Medicaid rebates for a particular drug and using a foundation of the pharmaceutical companies to subsidize patient co-pays. And obviously this foundation uh, is really kind of an entity that was used by the pharmaceutical company to pay for uh, those co-pays. So out of that $260 million, about $235 million was to settle the rebate allegations, and about $26 million went to resolving the kickback claims for the subsidies for the, the patient co-pays. So you can subsidize the patient co-pays if they do not have the ability to pay, but outside of that, uh, you cannot provide a, a co-pay or pay a, a patient's co-pay. Uh, because that would be deemed to be a patient inducement under the anti-kickback statute or the civil monetary penalties also. So next we return to medically unnecessary services. Uh, here, Physician Partners of America paid back $24.5 million to settle claims under the False Claims Act by submitting unnecessary drug, genetic, and psychological testing. So, uh, and I probably should have said this at the very beginning, a lot of these entities entered into corporate integrity agreements too as part of the settlements. But this case uh, for $24.5 million settled around medical necessity. Next, we have Care Plus Management and also anesthesia entities and two physician owners. And here it's interesting because the anesthesia entities we're trying to share their anesthesia revenue with the physicians who owned 
these surgery centers and sort of as an inducement in order for the surgery centers to use the services of the anesthesiologists. So here they were providing an inducement uh, for the surgery center to use their services. And here, the, collectively, the settlement was $7.2 million to resolve those allegations. The next one, and this one kind of shocks me, uh, dealing with home health, because this has been a repeated issue. Uh, a home health agency paid $2.1 million because the certifications about the patients being homebound were not accurate. So the beneficiaries were technically not homebound, even though they relied on a physician certification for the homebound status. So part of these allegations was that there was no plan of care established for the patients, and they did not have any in-person encounters by these physician who were certifying to determine the accuracy of the homebound status. So obviously, in order to have that certification for homebound patients, for home health agencies, there needs to be a face-to-face -face encounter uh, between the certifying physician and the patients. And again, that was a $2.1 million payment. The next one, we have a molecular testing company. They paid $2.8 million because they submitted laboratory tests in violation of the Medicare's 14-day rule. So this is uh, with respect to an inpatient status. If they submit claims that are connected to that inpatient uh, encounter, then it, within 14 days of the inpatient discharge, those services would otherwise be covered by the DRG that was paid. And in, in this case, there were some allegations that they encouraged uh, the ordering of tests that were associated with the inpatient stay. They were encouraged them to delay the testing until after the 14-day period, uh, even though that the testing was connected with their inpatient stay. Again, that was $2.8 million. Next, we have medical necessity. We have a home sleep testing agency. They agreed to pay back $3.5 million uh, when they were billing for unnecessary home sleep testing. And you know, basically what they were saying is that only one night of testing was necessary, but they were encouraged to bill for more than one day uh, of testing. And this is obviously testing for sleep apnea. So the rule here is you cannot bill for more than one night of testing when one night of testing is sufficient. What's also interesting in this case, even though the as part of the overall settlement was $3.5 million, uh, the company's founder paid back $300,000, and a vice president within the agency paid back $125,000 of the $3.5 million. So that goes to show that the government still is trying to hold individuals accountable in addition to the corporate entities. Next, we have a physician from Los Angeles. This physician agreed to pay back $9.5 million for billing for procedures and tests that he never performed. And this physician admitted that he intentionally submitted claims uh, seeking payment for tests and procedures that he never performed. Uh, so this is one where you have actual knowledge. So this one is, is a very clear case of the violation of the False Claims Act. And so that's $9.5 million this physician uh, repaid. And as part of that, it included $5.5 million as criminal 
restitution following a guilty plea that this physician made uh, in a healthcare fraud case. So uh, this was also uh, under the civil false claims as well as a criminal portion of that. So 9.5 million total, 5.5 of that uh, was for criminal restitution. And lastly, for this episode, it is important to remember that appropriately licensed and supervised staff are necessary in order to meet the medical necessity requirements for what we're billing. So here we had Molina Healthcare. They paid back $4.6 million based upon allegations that it billed both Medicare and Medicaid for services that were provided by unlicensed clinicians as well as staff who were not supervised. So now this brings me to my three Captain Integrity punch points for this episode. Captain Integrity punch point number one is the False Claims Act is still a huge weapon for the government and the Quitam Bar. As this mid-year report uh, indicates that there's still very large settlements uh, that have occurred. Captain Integrity punch point number two, just to remember that the False Claims Act, the knowledge uh, requirement under the False Claims Act is very broad. We saw in this episode that there were some cases, like the one physician from L.A., uh, where it was very clear it was actual knowledge, but in other cases, uh, they should have known. Uh, they should have known through appropriate oversight, training, and an effective compliance program. And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three in many of these cases that I reference, corporate integrity agreements were required uh, by the settling entities, as well as many of these cases were brought by QUITAM relators, former employees of some of these agencies. So uh, CIAs and also the QUITAM uh, recoveries were very front and center in many of these settlements. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.